You are listening to audio from Citizens Church Almira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. Well, a few weeks ago, um, I was texting with my mom, and she, uh, she sent me this photo on the screen here. Um, and when I saw it, I immediately knew its significance. Um, and I was pretty excited for the little guy on the left. That's my nephew, Cooper. Um, and as you can probably tell by the jersey, if you know anything about the NHL, he is a Dallas Stars fan. Um, now, I don't think uh, his selection as, uh, of Dallas Stars as his team, I think it had more to do with the, uh, the color of the jersey than anything else. Um, but nevertheless, he is all in for the Dallas Stars. Go Dallas. Now, the young guy on the right, that's Ty Delandria. Um, and he is a nephew to Greg and Leslie Don Fiss, um, who some of you will know uh, from Woodside. And he uh, is a centerman for the Dallas Stars. So naturally, uh, Cooper was pretty pumped to meet Ty. Uh, and the next time uh, my sister and her family were in town, um, I was chatting with Ryan, my brother-in-law, about this whole interaction and just how excited Cooper was. And Ryan was relaying the whole story to me. Um, and as he kind of told me about, about meeting Ty and everything, one thing that he, uh, one thing that he said kind of stuck out to me. Uh, he went out of his way as he was um, telling me of this story to um, mention his impression of Ty's character. Uh, he was commenting that Ty just is like a really nice, kind guy. Obviously, Ryan, as a father, was really excited to see this NHL player who really didn't have much of a connection to our family um, to take the time to sign Cooper's jersey, get down beside him on his level, and take this photo. Uh, and this sort of thing, when we hear these stories, it kind of it warms our heart a little bit, doesn't it? Like, we love it when we hear these kinds of things, when, when um, celebrities or famous folks or powerful people are, you know, humble and kind, and they're sort of real and authentic. They're down to earth. Um, they tend to acknowledge their humanity and are willing to give the time of day to people, especially kids, even when they, they don't really have to, like, they don't owe anybody anything. Um, but we respect and value people who, despite their position, take a posture of humility and they see other people around them. And the opposite is kind of true too, isn't it? I mean, we sort of lose respect for those people who milk their position for exclusivity and status. And it leaves a bad taste in our mouths um, if we get a vibe that someone sort of has an air of superiority about them. Even if, in some sense, it's justified by their position in life or their accomplishments. I mean, of course, we sort of understand that these people of high position, for a lack of better term, I mean, they're human too. They have their limits. Like, we don't expect people to stop for every fan and pose for every photo and shake every hand. I mean, they're busy people. Public life would probably be exhausting. And so we get it. In a sense, we, we don't expect them to see us in particular when everybody in general wants a piece of them. But I guess that's kind of what makes these sorts of things really special. You know, when the ties of the world slow down enough to see the Coopers, um, it makes for an experience, a story worth sharing. And as we study Mark's gospel, um, we find him telling us stories with similar themes, but it's not of a hockey player who paused for a few minutes to take a photo with a young fan. It's the story of God himself giving up his position to step down onto earth in order to save and serve sinners. In some ways, um, Jesus' words in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, kind of summarize what his whole life was about and what the Gospel of Mark is really getting at. 
For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this morning we're looking at uh, chapter 1, verses 21 to 34. And this passage that we're studying this morning, um, as you look over it, it seems to be recounting the story of a single day in the life of Jesus. In particular, it's recounting a single Sabbath day. So in verse 21 we read, they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And then in verse 29, if you look down a little further, and immediately he left the synagogue, so it's the same day, he leaves the synagogue and enters the house of Simon and Andrew. And then in verse 32, it says, when evening came. So that same day at evening, at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. So it's kind of like Mark is telling us, uh, you know, a Sabbath in the life, or it's as if I were telling you, you know, a Sunday in the life of a pastor or preacher. But if you were paying attention when Scott was reading the scripture, it's not exactly an ordinary Sunday or Sabbath by our standards. I mean, can you imagine if we had a guest speaker here uh, and came to, citizen, came to town, came to citizens to preach, um, preaches the best sermon you've ever heard, then at the end of the service, um, uh, somebody with a demon cries out, they cast, they cast that demon out, and then they go over to somebody's place for lunch, heal that person's mother, and then that evening, heal half of the town's infirmities and sicknesses. Like, you would probably start to ask, like, who is this person? Um, you might start to think, maybe we should be having them preach more often, you know? And by the way, if I get o- invited over to lunch, don't expect anything dramatic today. Um, but this, this is basically the story that Mark is, is telling us. He's, he's telling us that this happened with Jesus, you know? It's about what Jesus said and did and how the people responded to him. And it was mind-blowing. But this is all part of the good news. It's part of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And by telling us stories like this in his gospel, Mark is illustrating who Jesus is, what he's like, and then the stories seem to, in some way, um, beg the question at the end of them, what are you going to do about it? Like, what's our response? And so first, we're going to look at the passage today and try to pull out a couple things that we can learn from from these stories about Jesus. Like, what is he like? And then at the end, we'll talk a little bit about our response. And so this morning, we're going to think about all of this, at least Jesus' character, in terms of his position and his posture. Okay, first, Jesus has a position of authority. And second, Jesus has a posture of compassion. A position of authority and a posture of compassion. So let's start in verses 21 and 22. And they went into Capernaum, And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Last week, we heard about Jesus passing alongside the Sea of Galilee and calling his first disciples. And now we're picking up the story um, as the group of them moves into town, into Capernaum, which was a city on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And this is apparently where Simon Peter is from. Um, And we read later in the passage that he and Andrew had a house there, um, and perhaps it was not too far from the synagogue where Jesus was teaching. Um, And and in verse 21, we read that Jesus went into the synagogue at Capernaum and and was teaching the people there. Now, for clarity, uh, I don't know what comes to mind for you when you think of a synagogue. For me, often what I immediately think of is is temple. Well, it's not exactly the the same thing. In Jewish practice for worship and sacrifice, there was only the temple, one temple in Jerusalem. Um, And that's where the Jews would go for the appointed feasts throughout throughout the year. 
but the rest of the year, they had these local synagogues at this time in history. They participated in these, and they were local meeting places um, for Jews, for scripture reading, for prayer, and to hear teaching. Um, they were run by a synagogue ruler um, who was really an administrator just to take care of the building um, and maybe organize the services. And the actual teaching was done by laymen or guests who were allowed or invited uh, to speak. And apparently, on this particular Sabbath, Jesus um, was in the synagogue in Capernaum to teach. Um, Mark doesn't focus a whole lot on the content of Jesus' teaching. Um, it doesn't actually seem to be the main point of, of his message, or his, the, the story. Really, the crux of the issue is in verse 22, where we see the reaction of people. And it says, And they were astonished, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. Now, the Jews were probably accustomed to having various people teach during these services, like, kind of like we rotate speakers in our congregation, right? We, whether it's paid staff or it's, it's lay preachers that are, are speaking on a Sunday morning. Apparently, in those days, it was commonly the scribes. They were literate men who were responsible for copying and preserving and teaching the scriptures. But what the people here notice is that there is something categorically different about the teaching of Jesus, because he teaches from a position of authority. I mean, you can imagine a scribe teaching in the synagogue, relying on traditions and interpretations, you know, the teaching passed down from Moses, the mentorship of rabbis who taught them how to interpret the scriptures. I mean, this is the same way that we teach scriptures today. When I sit down to prepare a message, one of the key steps is that I wanna read what others have written about that particular passage. And so a couple weeks ago, I sat in Darcy's office over here for a few hours, and I opened up a number of commentaries and kind of went through them to look into the passage to make sure that I hadn't missed anything that others were seeing or that the things that I was picking up from the passage weren't completely out to lunch because there's a sense in which I don't trust myself as an authority on my own to interpret scripture. And sometimes in, in messages, you're gonna hear me quote or give direct credit to certain other authors or scholars or pastors. And I'm sure this sort of thing would have happened in the first century as well. Ultimately, though, like us speakers at Citizens or you know, the commentators that I'm reading or the, the scribes in that day and the rabbis they learned from, all of us are ultimately really appealing to the authority of scripture, are we not? We're not, even, we're not trying to create anything new, we're just simply to exp trying to explain what's already there, to exposit the teaching of the prophets and the writers of scripture. And then ultimately, if we think about it, those writers themselves and those prophets aren't appealing to their own authority, they're appealing to the ultimate authority, to God. Right? They're just trying to communicate his truth. I mean, much Old Testament prophecy begins with something like, the word of the Lord came to me, or thus says the Lord. It's not what I say, it's what he says. But then there's Jesus. He doesn't have to read up on how to interpret Isaiah. He's not quoting any rabbis on how to apply the Mosaic law. Sometimes he doesn't even quote scripture at all. He, just, he, he doesn't even say, thus saith the Lord. Often we hear him in the gospel saying, truly, truly, I say to you. Now it's quite possible there that the people on that day, they didn't fully grasp what was going on, but we understand from the whole of scripture why Jesus can speak with that kind of authority. It's because he is the one about whom 
all the scriptures were written in the first place. He is the origin of the truths that the biblical authors are trying to explain. He is the architect and builder of our experience, and so he can speak with complete authority on the nature of reality, the proper way to understand the world, and the best ways to live within it. And so, of course, we can expect that his teaching is going to have a little extra oomph. It's going to proceed with a little bit more authority than your standard guest speaker at a local synagogue. And the people at Capernaum recognized that that day, that he spoke from a position of authority. His words had power for teaching, even if they didn't fully grasp who he was yet. And in the passage, so we see his words have power for teaching, but we also see that his words have power for healing and authority over the spiritual realm. Mark records that there was a demon-possessed man there at the synagogue that day. And the text doesn't explicitly say when this guy spoke up, but it's as though he interrupted Jesus while he was in the middle of his message, as if the demon just couldn't take the power of Jesus' words any longer. And from the crowd, he shouts out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The demon knows exactly who Jesus is, and rightly fears him. He calls him out by name. He says, Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of God. Now, some people point out that that might have been an attempt by the demon to intimidate Jesus, to, to call out his name and gain some sort of power or authority over him by doing so. Maybe kind of like when I was a kid and my mom used to shout, Dustin, Aaron, Martin, you get over here right now. But of course, for the demon, it was in vain. Je Jesus just turns and simply speaks, and it's enough to deal with him. In verses 25 to 26, we read this. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. So we see that Jesus has authority over the spiritual realm, just with his, with his words. No incantations, no special formulas, no incense or oils or anything, just a command. And the whole exchange is kind of reminiscent of a story we'll read later in Mark when Jesus calms the storm with his disciples. They're in the boat, there's the storm raging around him, and he just exerts authority over nature by saying, peace, be still. That's what he says there, and the water is calm. Here he says, be silent, come out of him, and out the demon comes. And again, Mark's point seems to be wrapped up in how the people respond to what they've seen. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. This is the same kind of reaction the disciples had when Jesus calmed the storm. Who then is this, that even the wind and the seas obey him? Mark tells us these stories, and they end with onlookers asking themselves the questions of, like, who is this guy? But nobody actually answers, answers them. And our passage here this morning, it's people looking around each other at the synagogue. Like, did you see that? Who is this guy? But Mark never gives us an explicit answer to that question. I mean, we know from, from our first message in the Gospel of Mark, he's kind of tipped his hand already, right? Like, he starts the Gospel in chapter 1, verse 1, with, this is the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So clearly, he, he has stated that he already believes that Jesus is the Messiah. But throughout his Gospel... These narrative snippets of Jesus' life communicate that Jesus is altogether a different kind of Messiah than the Jews were expecting. 
but Mark doesn't fully explain himself, and he kind of leaves us to connect the dots. Now, I know many of us won't remember much from our high school English class. I mean, some of that, for some of us, it was more recent than others, right? But how many of you remember the holy trinity of uh, persuasive essay writing? You know, point-proof discussion, right? Point-proof discussion. First, I, I mean, I recall having that drilled into me throughout high school English, you know? Up front, you make your point, then you provide proofs for that point, and then the final step is to discuss that proof, like explain to your reader why that proof is relevant to your main point. Point-proof discussion, point-proof discussion, my little lambs, Miss Knapp would say. Yeah, apparently Mark never took a high school English class, or he just got lazy after the point and the proof, because he sort of makes his point at the beginning of the gospel, and then he has all of these stories about Jesus as the Messiah, which kind of function as the proof in a sense, but he's got very little discussion, right? He's more like a, a math teacher saying if A equals one and B equals two and C equals three, then A plus B plus C equals? Yes, six, nice. <laughs> and in our case this morning, it's as though Mark is saying A. A is authority to instruct. In verses 21 to 28, we see that Jesus teaches with power. His words stand on their own. He doesn't have to defer to anyone. He's different from other human teachers in that way. And then B, B is authority over the spiritual realm. Jesus, he casts out demons with, with just a phrase. And then C is authority over nature. In the rest of the chapter, Mark, or in the rest of the passage, sorry, Mark tells us about uh, Jesus healing Simon Peter's mother-in-law and then, and then the crowds. And then later on in the gospel, he tells us of other stories of of Jesus commanding over nature. He has authority over the physical realm. So we have authority to instruct, authority over the spiritual realm, and authority over nature. A plus B plus C equals. Like, who does this sound like? I think Mark is getting at that this Messiah is not the human military leader that the Jews had come to expect because Jesus isn't only human. His authority is not inherited, it's innate to his nature. It's a part of his being. He's God incarnate. Now this idea of, of God becoming man, it wasn't really within the Jewish mind at the time when they thought about the Messiah. They weren't expecting the Christ to be Yahweh himself. And yet here before them is this man who teaches with heavenly authority, casts out demons, and heals the sick. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, God Almighty, Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end. He has a position of authority. And so maybe the Jews weren't expecting God himself, you know, um, but perhaps they were expecting a charismatic leader at least, someone who would gather the people and lead a revolt against the Romans. Maybe he would do some signs and wonders along the way, but he'd be, you know, like a tough guy, you know, a no-nonsense type. But right up against this story of Jesus' authority, we have more stories that illustrate that Jesus had a character of humility and tenderness and gentleness. He had a posture of compassion. In verse 29, we pick up the scene after they've let, left the synagogue. It's like church has let out and afterwards they're walking to Simon Peter's house because it's just around the corner. And they arrive at his house and they find Peter's mother and Simon Peter's mother-in-law sick in bed with a fever. 
And Jesus immediately responds in, 31, in verse 31. And we read this. And he came to her and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Now, if you recall uh, Sam's introduction a few weeks ago to the book of Mark, um, Mark was probably a close associate of, of Simon Peter. And so this story here that we read in these couple verses, it's probably a personal recollection that Mark has written down. Um, and it has, so it has this touch of intimacy, right? Like Peter is recounting this great memory of when Jesus came to his house and, and showed compassion to his wife's mother. And that's what this story really illustrates is Jesus' compassion. There's such a simple tenderness in these verses. Like, this Jesus, the one whom we're, we're taught, we've just talked about having all this authority in heaven and on earth, the one who's just come back from what was probably a stressful uh, synagogue meeting, you know, with the whole demon possession thing and all, he goes into this sick woman immediately and gently takes her by the hand and helps her out of bed. In that picture of Ty and Cooper that I showed earlier, like Ty has himself squatted down with his arm around Cooper, right on his level to take that photo. And this, in this story of Jesus with Simon Peter's mother-in-law, it has that same sort of sense, that same sort of picture. And man, the power of that. Like God Almighty kneeled beside this woman's bedside, taking her by the hand and helping her to her feet. Total compassion. Now some of you know that uh, a few of us here at Citizens have been involved over the, over the past couple years um, with Samaritan's Purse, a, a Christian NGO um, that has pretty large involvement with relief and development across uh, the globe. And over the past uh, maybe like six years or so, um, they have developed and expanded their capacity to respond to medical disasters. Um, they've got these field hospitals that they're deploying. Um, they do a whole bunch of training and things. Um, and, and in particular, they focused on infectious diseases. Good timing, right? Yeah, well, pre-COVID, um, when the most recent infectious disease outbreak on our minds was Ebola uh, in 2014 in Liberia, um, Tim Martin and I went to Calgary for some training with SP. Um, part of that training was on their infectious disease response protocols. Um, and, you know, how to set up and build the treatment center, how to lay it out, um, what the disinfection procedures were throughout it, how to put on and take off all of the, the layers of PPE that were required for that, that response. Um, so we weren't actually in a, in a disaster zone, we were just preparing for it. But um, because, because it was Ebola, um, this is what our outfits looked like. Um, and one thing I recall from that training was uh, discussing patient care. Uh, and I mean, we all heard on the news at that time, um, and I mean, you can tell from our, the PPE that we were training to wear, like, Ebola is really contagious, like, really contagious. You don't, you don't want to get it. Um, and that meant that those who had the disease and were in these treatment centers, they had to be completely isolated, away from their loved ones, as they suffered through this disease. And we were encouraged, <clears throat> if we were ever in a treatment center, um, with the proper PPE and procedures, of course, to take time to show compassion when we were working in the center. Even though we were, like, I mean, basically, we were training to be janitors in the center. center. We're not medical professionals, right? Um, we were training on the, all the practical elements of running the place. But we were even encouraged to take time to pause, to sit by bedsides, to hold patients' hands, to sing to them, to pray with them, and show tenderness and love 
Because people need touch. They need compassion. They need to know that they're seen. And this week as I was kind of connecting the dots and reflecting on it, I was struck by like just how close that encouragement is to the heart of Jesus. Those simple displays of compassion for people in a place of weakness. And this is the heart that we see illustrated here in Mark 1. Jesus is ready to meet people in their sickness, in their brokenness, and put their needs ahead of his own. And then in verses 22 to 34, like they just kind of pile on to this illustration. Mark reports that at sundown that evening, the crowd started showing up with their sick and injured loved ones, and they're looking for healing. Now, they've, they've likely heard about um, the events at the synagogue earlier that day, about this man that had authority to heal. Um, but since it's the Sabbath, they couldn't carry their sick to him during the daytime. Uh, that would have been work, and it would have violated um, the Sabbath law, the Jewish law. And, and so they come at evening, because in the Jewish conception of time, the day ends at sundown. So once the sun is, has set, um, it's the next day, it's no longer the Sabbath, and they can come to Jesus with their sick. And so at that point, they, they come to find him. And so it's a Saturday evening, Jesus is still at Simon and Andrew's place, and perhaps just looking for a quiet evening with his disciples, but the crowds show up, and he doesn't send them away. He heals many, he casts demons out. Now, it's kind of hard to ascertain what the heart of the crowd uh, was like in coming to Jesus. Like, why were these people coming to him? Was it because they were drawn because of the teaching they had heard? They wanted to know who this, who this man was. Um, did they really know who he truly was? Maybe, maybe some were kind of putting it together. Maybe others were not. Really, it seems like they just wanted help with their sickness. Perhaps they really didn't have much interest in who he was or what he had to say or his broader mission. They just wanted their immediate needs met. And in a sense, we could criticize them for that, for just, you know, using Jesus. Um, but at this point, Jesus doesn't seem to. He just responds with compassion and heals many, Mark says. Now, we know that this kind of healing ministry, it wasn't central to Jesus' main mission. Um, we see in other places in the Gospels that he had boundaries um, uh, to his ministry. I mean, in, in verse 35, which, where we'll pick up to, uh, next week, we see that the very next morning, he actually like, goes away to a secluded place to get away from people, to withdraw and be alone. Um, but we can't help but notice on this particular Sabbath evening, he took time for people. He allowed himself to be interrupted, inconvenienced, imposed upon. He had a posture of service, of sacrifice, of selflessness, a posture of compassion. Now, like we said earlier, Mark doesn't provide a whole lot of commentary on his stories. Um, the point can be sometimes difficult to tease out. He tends to tell this brief story and then move on. I think the way that Sam described it was that uh, he kind of jump cuts, you know, from one story to the next. Uh, the result is a really fast-paced narrative. Mark kind of whisks us around the life of Jesus, telling us one story of another. He, after another, he, he jams a lot of information into a short amount of text, um, and so here at Citizens, our approach to studying the Gospel of Mark, this fast-paced, action-packed narrative is to take things real slow. I mean, this is sermon number four in the series, and I haven't even turned the page in my Bible yet. Um, and because of how Mark has put this Gospel together, uh, again, it, it's maybe difficult to understand the point, um, 
but one way we can kind of glean uh, from Mark what he's getting at and understand the relevance of the stories to the larger picture is to kind of pay attention to how people in the stories react, you know, to look at what the people around Jesus were saying, thinking, or doing in response. And the point is for us to look at the story and, and try to figure out where, where do we fit in? Where do we see ourselves? Like, how will we respond to what Jesus says and does? And so this morning, that's what we're left with, to look over this passage and ask, like, what is my response to Jesus' position of authority and his posture of compassion? Like, am I going to let myself be astounded by his power, his authority, and his greatness and spread his fame throughout my entire region? You know, like the crowds at the synagogue did in verse 28. Am I going to jump into action like Peter's mother-in-law? You know, she was healed and then she immediately begins to serve. Or am I just going to come to Jesus because I've heard he's a nice guy and he can help me with my problems? You know, like the crowds maybe did at sundown. Following Jesus is about a little bit more than that, isn't it? I think it is. And I think the call for us this morning um, is really twofold. It's to submit to his position and imitate his posture. In Colossians 1, Paul writes that, that Christ is the image of the invisible God. He is um, the firstborn among, among all creation, that all things were created by him and for him, and in him all things hold together. He is the architect, designer, and builder of creation, of us and our entire reality. And so in that position, is he not uniquely, uniquely positioned to teach us about how to operate and live within this world? Like Christ's message at the beginning of Mark in verse 15 is the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. He has invited us into his kingdom, a culture, a worldview, a way of life that in some cases is going to run really counter to the kingdoms of this world. But are we going to pay attention to that king? We have to decide if we are going to trust that he knows best for us, individually, corporately, as a community here, but also as a society. Because being citizens of his kingdom means more than just considering his advice as if he's a moral teacher. It's about obeying him as Lord. We are called to submit to his position. Now these words, um, submit, obedience, Lord, authority, like without considering the fullness of God's character revealed in Jesus, they can easily bring negative connotations. I mean, we are rightly skeptical of human authority because it has been abused so frequently. But that's why considering Christ's character, his posture of selflessness and service and compassion is so critical this morning. Because I could talk about verses 21 to 28, and we could have spent the whole morning um, on the greatness and the authority and the lordship of Christ and his absolute reign and rule and our need to submit to him to fall in line. And there would be nothing untrue about that. Or I could talk about verses 29 to 34, and we could just focus on his compassion and his gentleness, and we could encourage one another to live good, selfless lives following his moral example. But the beauty of the gospel of Mark, what makes Jesus' greatness even greater and his love even deeper is the juxtaposition of those two truths. That not only does Jesus have a position of authority, but from that position he takes a posture of service. 
that God himself came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for not just many, but for me. That God himself sees me when I am that demon-possessed man, when I am trapped, perhaps not by a literal demon, but by other addictions and selfishness and sin. And he sees me in that, and he is able and willing to help me free. God himself sees me when I am Simon Peter's mother-in-law, when I am at my weakest, I am at my most vulnerable, I am knocked flat on my back, and I am unable to get up. And he has extended his hand to help me to my feet. And with Christ as our example, how can we not do the same? How can we not get in the trenches with each other and with our neighbors because Christ got in the trenches with us? How can we not make time for others when Christ opened eternity for us? We love because he first loved us. You know, as I, as I read commentaries to prepare for this morning, um, a few commentaries that I read wanted to make, make much of um, the, the line right at the end of verse 31, you know, after Simon Peter's mother-in-law um, had been healed. And she immediately gets up and serves, um, probably preparing a meal, right? Preparing the evening meal for that, that night. Um, several commentators describe this as sort of a virtuous response of, of gratitude to what Jesus had done. Personally, I don't, I don't really think she thought much about it. I don't really see it that way. I mean, it's a helpful rhetorical device. I mean, I just used it a few minutes ago. Um, but ultimately, I think Mark is just recording the events here. And perhaps it's maybe because of my upbringing and I, I think this was probably just an instinctive um, reaction for, for this woman. Like, it's not exactly foreign to uh, our culture around here to think that um, a woman who, upon being healed from a nasty fever and finds the Sunday morning preacher in her home, is going to instinctively spring into action and start preparing a meal. Now, whether or not she should feel obligated to do that is not my point. Um, but I think we can agree that for many, that kind of response would be an instinct. It wouldn't require conscious thought. And for us as believers, our goal is to be ever-changing into the image of Christ so that imitating his posture of compassion is an instinct. And of course, that's going to come by training and conscious practice and discipline, but it also comes by just growing deeper and deeper in our understanding of his position and his posture and then we will see that instinct grow within us. To the degree that we understand and know and accept his position far above us, and yet his enduring posture of compassion towards us, to that degree, our hearts will align with his and we will be moved into compassion towards others. And so this week, let's meditate on that beautiful contradiction that God himself became man to save you and to save me. Let's with grace for ourselves and with each other, recognize Jesus as Lord and submit to his position. And let's dwell on his compassion and imitate his posture. Amen.